Welcome to Speaking Candidly with Candace, your voice for mental health and personal growth. I'm your host, Candace Schoner, and today with my guest, Amanda Lee, we will be talking about coming to terms with trauma, no matter how severe. Amanda is a domestic violence survivor and the author of the new book, One of the Lucky Ones. According to the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, one in three women and one in four men have experienced physical violence by an intimate partner. Welcome, Amanda, to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Well, we are delighted to have you here, and um, I'm going to dive right in as I usually do. <laughs> in your book, you describe meeting your husband, Dan, at a friend's party, mm-hmm. creating a friendship, and eventually marrying and having children together. Yes. How long did you date before getting married, and when did you start seeing Dan's darker side? Um, <clears throat> so we dated about... I'm trying to remember about a year and a half to two years before we got engaged. And right from the beginning, um, his family and friends would be like, Don's great, but he's got an anger problem or, Oh, have you seen his anger or tell me stories about like fights he would have with his brother and his brother's girlfriend at the time. I remember her detailing this fight where she thought she was going to have to call the police. And I was just, I remember looking at my then boyfriend at the time, and I'm like, I don't, I don't see this. And I remember asking him about some of the things I was hearing and he just it off. He was like, oh yeah, I, I had an anger, anger problem, but I, you know, I'm fine now. And I'm like, oh great. Well, like, did you like see a therapist? Did you go to anger management? And he was just like, no, I just worked it out on my own. And I didn't, I didn't think anything of it because I hadn't seen it yet. And I, I didn't. His anger didn't rear in his its head until about six to eight months into the relationship. We had a fight at a Halloween party and he had gotten in my face and screamed at me like I had never been talked to. And I was in such shock. And he was afterwards, as all abusers are, super apologetic, promised me it would never happen again. And I believed it. And unfortunately, as is the cycle of abuse... It did continue, and every time it got more severe. Did you come from my family with, I guess, anger issues? No, <clears throat> I didn't. My parents are still together. Um, I mean, they fought, but it wasn't it wasn't abusive. It wasn't nasty. Um, but no, I had I had a very loving home growing up. What, is it Dan or Don? Because I think I introduced him as Dan. It's Don. It's okay. It's a fake name. So, I mean, we can call him Don, Dan, whatever you want. Okay. Well, <laughs> okay. Well, good to know that. Um, so what about past relationships? I mean, is this a pattern for you? And I don't want to be accusing you of anything. I'm just trying to figure out how does one get with somebody who is verbally or physically abusive and kind of overlook the signs? Yeah. Well, it's not so much overlooking i mean with the cycle of abuse it's a slow trickle and you want to believe when your partner tells you this is never going to happen again okay i trust you you're my partner this is never going to happen again and it's also it's shame it's thinking you know it's also disbelief that this is actually happening and it's, it's almost like you you disconnect from yourself until one day and the only way i can describe 
wake up and you realize what is happening and the severity of it. And then it starts to be like, how do I get myself out of this situation before he kills me or something? And if you have children, as we did, it's how do I protect my children? How do I, how do I do this? So it, it's not so much overlooking. It's the, the want to believe that this number one is not happening to you, but also you want to believe and trust your partner that this, this was a one-time thing. This was, this is not who I am. This is never going to happen. And also it doesn't happen every day. I mean, I detail in my book, it sounds like it's every day and it's not, it's a snapshot of a 10 year relationship. And there were great moments, but there were also really bad ones. But in terms of past relationships, I, this was the first and last abusive relationship I've ever been in. I, I mean, I, I fought with my high school boyfriend, but not, not to the severity. And I was in a series of serious relationships before, um, but nothing that was abusive. Again, I'm not trying to place blame or, or anything like that. Contrary, just the opposite. I'm just trying to a understand it and help our mm-hmm. listeners understand how this can happen to anyone. Yeah. Would you, yeah. would you agree with that statement? Oh, absolutely. And after we had um, a serious domestic violence disturbance happen, which forced my, my, my door open and I had no choice but to leave. Um, and after that happened, I feel like people came out of the woodwork to tell me, oh, that happened to me. Oh, that happened to me. I mean, the statistic is true. It is, it is one in four people. And I would venture to say it's probably even higher than that. And it can happen to anyone. And most of the time, even if it's a close family member or a friend, you have no idea it's happening. So you were, prior to meeting Don, mm-hmm. uh, the people around him, his family, his friends, had told you that he had a temper. Mm-hmm. And then you asked him about the temper and he said he'd kind of gone through anger management. Is that correct? No, he said he had just worked through it on his own. And he worked through it on his own. Yeah. Were you at all frightened or you just felt like this is not the person I know? This doesn't make sense? I wasn't frightened because I hadn't seen it fully yet. Um, you know, I, when someone says they have a temper, I equate it to like, I, I have a temper. My my father has a temper, but it's not an abusive. It's, it's you know, I'm stubborn and and sometimes I get mad. And that's what I kind of compared it to myself. So I never was frightened. I never thought that it would turn abusive um, because I also, I had not seen it with my own eyes. So let me ask you about the forms of domestic violence because it's not strictly physical abuse. Yeah. In the case of your relationship, your marriage, was it both verbal and physical? Yes, it was. It was verbal. It was more verbal than physical. Um, but it was both verbal and physical. It was psychological. Um, it was financial. I, our, there is a big discrepancy in our salaries. He makes quite a bit more money than I do. Um, and I was in debt trying to pay for everything. And it, you know, it's, it's, you don't think when you think of abusive relationships, you automatically think physical, but there's so many other different forms. I mean, the verbal part, the put downs, the name calling, um, 
the psychological, chipping away at my self-esteem, thinking I wasn't good enough, thinking that no one would ever love me except for him. And like I said, the financial part as well. Did you share your experiences with friends or family or did you keep it to yourself for fear of shame, which I hear a lot of people do? Yeah. I mean, I kept it to myself. No one knew. Um, And, you know, it was twofold. It was shame. Absolutely. And there's still shame associated that this, there's a feeling when you are a victim of domestic violence that you are allowing this to happen to you. And I definitely felt that way. I'm, I'm an intelligent woman and I'm from Philly. I don't take anyone's crap. (laughs) So the fact that I was, I, I had the mentality of I was allowing this to help happen to me was such a shameful feeling that I didn't share with anyone. I also, you know, and as delusional as it sounds now being several years out of it, I always had the hope that it would change. I, this is a person I married. I had two small children with, I had hoped that it would change. And I knew if I shared what was going on, no one in my life would ever accept him. And it was also, you know, I knew the minute I told my parents, my siblings, my best friends, they would be in their cars, packing me up, getting me out of there. And I was not convinced I could safely leave. Right. Because abusive partners make you feel trapped in a relationship, correct? Yeah. 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 Oh, I, I, the minute that engagement ring got on my finger, it was like a snap switched and I felt incredibly trapped and I didn't know what to do. So there were signs even before you got married. There was the first um, physical abuse incident happened several months after we got engaged. Um, and like I said, it's, it was like an out of body experience after it happened. I, I just kind of sat there in my apartment alone and was like, I don't, what just happened? How did this just happen to me? This didn't just happen. And then it's almost like you convince yourself, okay, it wasn't as bad. This isn't that bad. Like this isn't, this isn't that bad. And even, even today, after I have family and friends and coworkers reading my memoir and they're like, I can't believe you went through all that. I can't believe it was that severe. And it's like, I have to remind myself, no, this really did happen. This really was as bad as, as I wrote this really, this was my reality for many years. Do you think that your relationships with your family and friends changed due to your husband's abuse? Yeah. I mean, I, I would say my relationship suffered greatly um, because I felt very isolated and I wasn't sharing what was happening in my relationships. And I also had a fear once we had children of leaving the children alone with him. So there were many times I would cancel on family events or events in my friends' lives because I was going to be away from home for too long. And I was nervous about leaving him alone with the children. Did he ever verbally or physically abuse the children? Uh, It started to turn verbal towards my son in, in particular um, a couple months before I left. And that, I think that's what really made me wake up was it started to turn on the kids and I could see the kids acting out at school and camp. And I just thought, I I have to figure out how to get out of here. I, I have to figure out. And I also, I'm, you know, I knew that I had never called the police before. It would be my word against his. 
how could I protect my children from him if I wasn't there every day? I live in Virginia and it is very much a unification um, custody state. They want both parents in the children's lives, which is great. But in, in cases of domestic violence, if I don't have a paper trail of the abuse that incurred, there was no way I was going to be able to prove it and prevent him from having the kids 50-50. And that meant 50% 50 of the time, I wasn't there to protect them. Which has got to be an awful feeling. It, it, it was. It was It was very much, I don't know what to do. We can't live like this, but I don't know how to protect everybody. As a child of an alcoholic and an abusive father, um, I know exactly how that feels. My mm -hmm. other question is, you said you lived in, at the time, did you live in Virginia? Yes. Mm -hmm. Did you live near neighbors? I'm just wondering if they heard the violent outrage. Yes, I have, um, I, I have amazing neighbors um, and they did not hear the violent um, outburst, but the night that I had to, he had threatened to kill me and the children oh and went as far and burn the house down with us in it. Mm. Went as far as got a gas can and a lighter. And I had to grab my children and run for our lives. We ran to my neighbor's house who happens at the time to be a police officer. Um, and without their support, I mean, they were there minutes after everything happened. So is that the first time you got the police involved? Yes. Yeah, that was the first time I called the police. And can you kind of run me through or the listeners through what happened that night? Yes. Um, so as I call it, the Cliff Notes version of it is we were fighting um, all day. We were about to leave on a family vacation um, the next day. And that was triggering for him for some reason. And I still don't know why. And we had had a fight about our son going to bed. He wanted to play in the shower a little bit longer. He was just five years old at the time. And he went downstairs to tell his dad that he was, he was ready for him to put him to bed. And my ex-husband yelled at him and said, go to bed, you little shit. Mm. To which my five-year-old came up crying Aww. and repeated the words. So I put both of my children to bed. I had, um, my daughter was three at the time. And went down and told him he couldn't speak to him like that. And he did his favorite thing to do at first would be to ignore me. So he just walked around the house, ignoring me as I was telling him, please go up and talk to him. You can't talk to him like this. And he turned to me and he had a glass of water in his hand and he threw water all over me. And I said, you cannot treat me like this. I'm not standing for this anymore. I'm calling the police. And I'm saying this calmly. I was not calm at the time. And he got in my face, nose to nose, spitting on me, telling me that he would chop up my body before the police even had a chance to ring the doorbell. Mm. And I ran downstairs with my phone. And he was at the top of the stairs mocking me about calling the police. And I realized he was standing in between me and the children and I needed to get them. And for whatever reason, he, he snapped and said, F this, I'm going to burn the house down. I'm going to burn the house down with you and the children in it. Passed me on the stairs, rounded the corner of the garage to our garage where I knew there were two red gas cans. So I sprinted up the stairs, flew open my children's doors and said, we have to go get your, 
they have lovies. They call them Ducky and Lammy. I'm, Get Ducky and Lammy. We're leaving. We're leaving. And we sprinted out of the house to our neighbors. And I looked back and he was rounding the corner with a gas can and a lighter in his hand. Oh, geez. And as I was running with the children, I was on the phone with 911. Wow. How, how do you even begin to process that and heal from that trauma? Um, and that is a big T trauma, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, because the kids were involved, my, my initial, uh, my, my only concern was them. How do I move them forward? How do I make this, you know, it, it still kills me to this day that this is part of their story, but how, how do I make sure that they are okay? And my focus was them for a very long time. Um, until I realized that some of the things that I was experiencing were true a medical diagnosis of PTSD. Um, and then I took the time for myself. I got a therapist. I, I mean, I did everything. I got a therapist. I went to an energy healer. I did sacral, I forget what it's called, some type of massage that's specific for P- PTSD victims. I started writing. Um, I did everything I could think of so that I could be healthy again. And I am now. I mean, but that type of trauma, that is not something that goes away. I mean, just uh, yesterday, I'm in, in now in a very healthy, loving relationship. And my fiance was starting a, a fire and he used uh, a red gas can. Oh, God. And I was like, I looked at him. I was like, I, 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 I need you to warn me if you're going to do that. I can't be here. I can't be here. I can't be here. So you know, while, while I have healed immensely, there's still healing to be done. And, and same for my children. I mean, this is, it was a tr- very traumatic event for all of us to go through. And that's going to take the rest of our lives to continue to work through. Your kids are how old now? They are an almost nine-year-old and a seven-year-old. And a seven-year-old. And they're doing relatively well? They are. They're great. Um, and, you know, their dad my ex, he shortly after everything happened was diagnosed with uh, bipolar disorder. And he, because, you know, his hand was forced, he got help. He went to anger management. He got a psychologist. He got a psychiatrist. He, he went to parenting classes. Um, and it was well, year and a half before he was able to see the kids on a regular basis, unsupervised. And because we've all done work, um, they, they have a good relationship with him. That is an amazing story. And I did not expect the ending. And I'm sure there's more to the story. And there's <laughs> maybe, maybe a different ending. But I did not expect yeah. that uh, he would get the help that he needed. And he did. he'll be in your lives. He did. He got, he got the help that he needed. Um, and that wouldn't have happened if we didn't have that traumatic event that would have never happened. Um, so he, because his hand was forced as well, he, he finally got the help that he needed. And I imagine he's on medication for the bipolar disorder. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so few people fail to take medication, even though they need to take it to even yeah. them out. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we put in our custody agreement that there has to be regular check-in. I mean, I did everything, you know, I, regular check-ins with physicians to make sure he's still doing what he's supposed to be doing. Um, but yeah, we, 
he has a he has a good relationship with the kids. I don't know that I'd say great, but he definitely has a good relationship with them. How did the book start and how do your family members feel about you sharing your memoir? Um, so it started with my therapist, my very good friend who also happens to be a psychic and other friends really need to write. Write is writing is very therapeutic. And I for years tried to be that person that journals. I mean, I did. I really, really tried. And I'm just not that person. And it was one day my friend Bonnie said, well, what if you wrote a book? Like, think about writing it as a book. And I was like, I'm not a writer. What are you talking about? And then one night I couldn't sleep, which is a normal occurrence. And I started thinking about what I would call my chapters and what I would put. And then the next day I sat at my computer and it was just, it was like word vomit. It just poured out of me. Um, and then I finished it and I was just like, okay, that's cute. Like I did this and I showed it to actually my neighbor and she read it in a matter of hours and said, I couldn't put it down. I really think you need to like hire a professional editor and just get it spruced up, you know, have a second person look at it. And I was like, okay, like, yeah, I'll have an editor make it sound better so I can one day show my children, like, this is my side of the story. And I did, I hired an editor. And after she was done, she was like, I really think you need to push to get this published. I really think you do. And I was like, okay, like, still not believing this would ever be a thing. I'm like, okay, fine. Like I did. And I sent it out to, I think, like 300 literary agents and over a span of, I don't know, five, four or five months. And then finally one bit and it's published now. That's, that's incredible. So where, while we're on the subject of the book, which is titled one of the lucky ones, where can people find it? Um, you can find it in Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, Google and Apple. Have you ever done a reading from the book? I have not now. I probably should have prepared you and asked you to do one for us <laughs> here on the air, but but unless you have it handy, I will skip over that question. I can. I have a copy right here. All right. We would like to hear a little bit, if you don't mind, Amanda. No, not at all. Let me. Get a good. I will read a little bit from chapter one. So chapter one's title is let's start at the very beginning. And every chapter I start with a quote. And this quote is from my very, very dear friend, Chris Lewis. And she says, hold on. I think I need to pour a glass of wine for this, which she said to me on the phone one night. I have always loved the movie 27 Dresses, which is the story of a hopeless romantic who is always a bridesmaid and never a bride and is just waiting for her turn to find true happiness. I could relate to it so well. I was ready for my chance. I wanted to get married and have children, something I had dreamed about since as long as I can remember. After buying my seventh bridesmaid's dress, I had had about enough. I was already in a in a four-year long-distance relationship that was going nowhere. I tried desperately to convince my boyfriend that we should get married, but fortunately for both of us, he was smart enough to realize that we were wrong for each other. 
don't get me wrong when we broke up when he broke up with me three days before Christmas, I wanted to smash his face in, but I took a girl's trip to Vegas a few days later that helped me forget about things. After the breakup, I proceeded to unhappily date around for a few months. I dated a guy who had a breathalyzer in his car, something my friends will never let me forget. Dated someone who said they were separated and turned out to be very much still married. Still feel bad about that one. And dated someone who could have been an underwear model. One of my proudest accomplishments to date. I was still very unhappy and I was ready to get married and have children. I was trying to speed up time, which generally does not work out in my favor. Then enter the ex, Don. Wow. It's a great story. I mean, I'm, I'm hooked now and I'm sorry that I never got a chance to read the book before (laughs) the interview. Been on a busy, busy schedule. Um, That's okay. We're running out of time and I do have one more question to ask Mm -hmm. you. Well, maybe two. And I know based on your book and your chapters, you like quotes. Yeah. What is a quote that you would like to share with people that you think would inspire them if they were in a similar situation? Um, the quote I would like to share with the listeners is no one who has ever been in an abusive relationship regrets leaving. Very well said. Very good quote. Yeah. And since we're talking about not regret leaving, how do you know without a shadow of a doubt when it is time to leave? You know, I think it's different for everyone. I, you know, a lot of the coping mechanism for domestic violence victims is you kind of, you lose yourself. You are almost like in a daze and everyone it's, it's a different moment where you just wake up something triggers you something something makes you wake up so i can't pinpoint that i mean we can we can sit there and diagnose other people's relationships i mean everybody does and be like oh you should have left then and you should have left then but really it's different for everybody and my only hope is that all of those people who are experiencing these things that may be listening to my story reading my book listening to that quote it helps you wake up and understand that no one ever regrets leaving On that note, we are going to leave you on this podcast, and I want to thank my guest, Amanda Lee, for sharing her memoir, her book, her insights into domestic violence and how to get out, recognize the signs, and to wish everybody uh, well, and remember that every cloud has a silver lining. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you. If you are being abused by your partner, No, there is nothing you have done or are doing to cause the abuse. It is solely the choice of the abuser to abuse. It may seem impossible to escape your abuser, change your circumstances, or find the help you need, but it is possible. For anonymous, confidential help, 24-7, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. That's 1-800-799-7233.